Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. Too many people spend too much of their life getting ready to get ready. Woo. And I've hired a lot of people, put them in a role or put them in a job or put them in a position or put them at a desk. And I'd go back a day or two later or an hour later or six hours later or a week later, and they were still getting ready. And what I, what I found out is it, it's, it's better to jump in the deep end whether you can swim or not, you'll get ready pretty quick. Life's hard, but when you find your path in life, you'll find fulfillment. I'm Sam Coates, and welcome to the Driven By Podcast. On this show, I talk to people with purpose. And hearing these stories and conversations, my hope is that you'll see your path, which will bring out the best in you. Follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram, at Sam P. Coates, and learn more about my guests and subscribe to the show at drivenbypodcast.com. My guest this week is Kent Ritchie. For over 50 years, Kent has been in the automobile business. Kent's company, Landers Auto Group, has 15 automobile franchises with over 450 associates in Tennessee, Mississippi, and Arkansas. I wanted to have this conversation with Kent to understand all the changes taking place in the automobile industry and how he adapts to them. Additionally, we discuss how he checked his ego when he went from an owner to a salesperson when he needed a job, what he's learned about people and what they want after 50 years of selling automobiles, what's ahead with the electric and autonomous cars, how he navigated the 2008 financial crisis right after he bought his first dealership, and more. Please enjoy my conversation with Kent Ritchie. Hey, everybody. I'll just make this easy. Do you need insurance? Do you want another opinion about your insurance? Just go ahead and call Matt Haga with State Farm. It'll be easy. If you're thinking about it, just do it. We do have listeners to this show from all over the world. So this offers only for listeners in the state of Tennessee and Mississippi in the United States. Matt Haga State Farm offers auto, home, renters, business, and life insurance. Go to madhaga.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-A-A-G-A.com and contact them. When you contact Matt, tell him I sent you. Hey, everybody. I have one last quick cool company to tell you about. Are you like a majority of Americans who love the idea of working from home when you want to? If you do, then I bet you'll like to check out havenspaces.org. Havenspace lets you design the outdoor office of your dreams, but we make it easy and build and ship directly to you. 
go to havenspaces.org. That's H-A-V-E-N-S-P-A-C-E-S.org to learn more and see how to connect with us. Full disclosure, I do own this company, but I'm willing to put it out here on this podcast because I know it'll make your life better. And they look pretty awesome too. Now we're going to get back to the show. Can you tell me about Hendrix? Can we start there? I didn't realize you were such a great basketball player. Is that true? You, you must have been uh, talking to Jack Sammons. <laughs> I never, I would never have gotten into Hendrix unless I played basketball, and I and I darn well wouldn't have gotten out unless I played uh, basketball. That was one of the greatest things in my life. It, uh, and the longer I'm out, the more important it becomes, and the more uh, I realize uh, what a foundation it uh, it provided. Absolutely love that institution. Served on the board of trustees for 12 years. Uh, still participate in the fundraising and still follow the school and uh, good friends with the current president. But it is an absolute treasure for the state of Arkansas and for the Mid South. What is it that you loved about basketball or still do? Well, it was a way to compete and uh, it was uh, a way to use up a lot of energy that, you know, that uh, a typical teenager has. And for me, it was a, it was a, it was a release and I was not a good student and it was a way for me to perform. And it kept me uh, focused because uh, if you didn't make your grades, you didn't get to play and you didn't make certain grades. You didn't get into Hendrix and you darn well didn't get out unless you maintained, uh, you know, a certain level. So it was a good uh, discipline for me, but, I was a rarity back in the 60s when I graduated from high school. Most colleges would not take married athletes, let alone put them on uh, scholarship. There's a real famous uh, football player from Bookhaven, Mississippi, who became an All-American at the University of Arkansas by the name of Lance Allworth. Well, Lance and I are not friends, but we're in the same peer group. And the reason he didn't go to Ole Miss is because they wouldn't uh, – give uh, married scholarships and Frank Brawls would at uh, Arkansas and the rest was history. I got married before I got out of high school and Hendrix uh, still gave me a scholarship. And when I went to college, I was the only one in the, in the whole conference uh, that was married by the time I graduated, several others were. So that sounds like a, a little deal now, but that was a huge deal then. Of your, let's say your friends in high school, let's say 10 of them, how many of them were also married uh, when they came out of high school like yourself? None. So did you just fall seriously in love very early? And I mean, that's it? When you're 16 or 17, you know, just uh, sometimes your hormones are uh, stronger than your common sense. (laughs) I went to college with one child and I graduated with two. Gotcha. And I did it in four years, which was Back then, if you didn't do it in four years, uh, you know, you were almost ostracized. I graduated uh, from high school in 61 and college in 65. So it seems like a long time ago, but it, uh, to me, it seems like yesterday. Was there a shift when you got to Hendrix from a discipline and focus standpoint on the importance of playing basketball? Or did you have that in high school, too? Oh, I, I already had that drive. The shift in the, the shift in the focus when I got to Hendrix was academics. But uh, fortunately, I had a ability to dribble a basketball and had some leadership skills at a young age. So uh, that got me by. And the car business, that's family business with your father, correct? 
No, I went to work for my father in 1970, and that's how I got into the business. I, my, my dad was an early dealer in Arkansas, and I worked for him when I was in high school and college, and then I went to work full-time uh, after a brief career in the banking industry, and I worked for him for about 20 years, and then his last 20 years of his life, he ended up working for me. So it's not something I inherited or nothing, nothing no family businesses that we still own or that we uh, started. And I, I want to just make sure I was clear. I didn't mean that you have the dealerships that you have today because of right. the family right. business. I just meant where you got that interest into yeah. auto dealerships. I was curious, is that, is that where it came from? Yeah, I, I grew up in automobile business. That's all I knew. Uh, that's all I thought people did. And I thought whatever automobile dealer's life was, was the way everybody was. So you really never thought about doing anything else. Is that a true statement? Well, I went in. I went in the banking business after I graduated from Hendricks for about four years before I starved to death and got in the family business. Was that banking experience helpful with how you built out all your dealerships? Extraordinary, extraordinary. I started to work with what was First National Bank downtown Memphis when it was First National Bank the year they moved into the new tower, and that was an incredible. Uh, training ground and breeding ground for entrepreneurship and leadership and uh, never have forgotten. It was like uh, a master's and a PhD. Just curious, is there two or three specific things that you felt like you learned that you drove that were principles to you as you've continued to have the success that you've had with your auto dealerships? Well, you, you can only go as far as your word and you can only go as far as your credit will take you. And I uh, I think that after 50 years in this business, uh, uh, my word is my bond and my credit is impeccable. Yes, sir. What are the things that you've had to navigate being an owner from a word standpoint where you feel like you cling to those principles and they might be, if they're hard at the time, but what are the things that you see play out where that could go the other way? I, I guess the biggest thing is is, is stress cash management and, and people skills. And if you can master those or or do well in those, you can do pretty well in, in any business. Uh, automobile dealerships eat cash like cows eat grass. So you can never have too much of it and you can never have enough of it. And you can't do anything without people. So my guiding principle has been people and then product and then promotion and then profit. Because if you do the first three, the last one will come. And so did you work for Penske too in Homer Skelton? I worked for both uh, individuals and they both were uh, made uh, lasting impressions on my life. I worked for Homer Skelton for approximately 10 or 12 years. I worked for uh, Roger Penske for 10 years. And that was a, that was a great experience. And, uh, and I bought my own dealerships uh, after I left Roger. 2007. I waited until the world was collapsing economically to put all my money on the table and uh, <laughs> go into a high-risk business. The month I, I purchased the first store, which was a four-store in Cairo from Mr. Penske, uh, was the month that the uh, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. Can you talk about that? That was one of the most stressful times in my life and probably anybody else's life. And I've always been a light sleeper, but I would wake up at 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning and wonder how we were going to make payroll on Friday and how much cash was in the bank. And to this day, I still get up around three or four o'clock every morning. But that was a, that was an extremely stressful time. And reminds me of one of the, 
of what we're going through now with the pandemic, the, the big cash infusion that the government made through PPP and also through the uh, checks to individuals back last summer and then the one that they're doing now, well, there was another program that came along in 2008, maybe early nine, called Cash for Clunkers. That literally saved the automobile, the retail automobile industry in, in the United States. And that's where you got that $8,000 credit for turning in and buying another one? Yeah, it was typically about 4000 But yes, you could turn it, you could trade in an older car and improve your gas mileage and, uh, and your warranty and your safety. And the government, the United States government, actually got that idea from Europe. Uh, they had done it in France uh, several months before we had adopted it. At that time, it was the largest transfer of wealth ever in the United States, but it absolutely was a lifesaver to the automobile industry. Do you remember offhand the total number that it cost the United States government to do that cash for clunkers program? I don't remember the number at the time. It was it was a huge number, but by comparison now to the the last big bailout that we had last summer and the one we're going through now, it was peanuts. And if you remember, that's about the same time General Motors was going through bankruptcy. Chrysler was going through uh, retail automobile sales went from sixteen million a year to eight million. 25% of the automobile dealerships went out of business and never returned. It was a, it was a huge consolidation. And with Penske and with Homer Skelton, what roles did you have there? I started out working for uh, Homer in one of his Toyota stores Then I ended up uh, uh, running the Toyota store. And then as he bought other stores, I took them under my wing. Uh, Mr. Penske came along in 97 and bought out Mr. Uh, Skelton. I became an area vice president or platform manager, which is which was a new term and the, a new job at that time. It's pretty typical now. These uh, public consolidators like to have a large footprint in each of the markets, and uh, they typically have someone as the shot caller. And that was a role that uh, I played uh, for Roger for 10 years. At any point during that time, did you think or know that you would want your own dealerships at a certain point? Well, sure, and, and and as I was aging out in that in that group, they needed uh, younger people. They need quite frankly, they needed less expensive uh, people, and there were several of at my level around the country. And as a public company, typically consolidates and they inherit uh, talent. Uh, you know, at some point, they want to shift the paradigm and they want to lower their their cost. And several of us got to the point where it was. It was more advantageous for us to go out on our own. And quite frankly, it was advantageous for uh, Mr. Pinsky's organization for us to do that. It was a real, uh, it was a win-win situation. We, He was deleveraging from domestic uh, dealerships at that time. He still owns very few of them now out of 300 uh, franchises around the world. So we were able to buy losing operations at uh fraction of cost and obtain some favorable financing and uh, able to uh, get started on our own. Are there things that when you think back on your career during this time period that you learned from Mr. Pinsky that you've carried with you and tried to operate by? Absolutely. Unwavering discipline, unwavering consistency and persistency. And I've never uh, forgotten that. Uh, I have a great association with Mr. Skelton and loved the guy he passed away uh, recently, still close to his uh, family. But I have never been around a more inspiring 
a business individual than, uh, than Roger Pinsky. And uh, he was always the same. He was always on and he had high expectations. Yes, sir. What did that look like in a day-to-day environment? Have a plan, execute that plan, and know what everyone's role is in it. And do it from the jump. He had a great phrase, too many people spend too much of their life getting ready to get ready. Woo. And I've hired a lot of people, put them in a role or put them in a job or put them in a position or put them at a desk. And I'd go back a day or two later or an hour later or six hours later or a week later, and they were still getting ready. And what I, what I found out is it, it's, it's better to jump in the deep end whether you can swim or not, you'll get ready pretty quick. Do you think that prolonged period of getting ready, is that due to fear? Is that due to insecurity? What do you think that those reasons are that create that barrier? I think it's a lack of drive. I think it's a lack of personal discipline. And I I think it's a a lack of expectations. And I I think people think that they, they have to do something a long time to be successful at it. Some of the most successful sales personnel I've ever hired, and I've hired thousands of them. Some of the most successful managers I've ever had, and I've hired thousands of them. They were a success on day one. It did not take them 30 days. I cannot tell you how many salespeople I've hired who led the sales board the first 30 days they were there. Not just one, but many. And not with sales staffs of five or six or 10. I'm talking about sales staffs of 60 or 70 in the same platform. So when you started buying these dealerships in 2007, was it you and a partnership group of former Penske colleagues or was it you independently? It was just me and my wife. And then we convinced some key people one at a time to come in with us and and take a, an equity position, regardless of what that amount was so that they'd have some skin in the game, but so they would, so it would create, create wealth for them over a period of time. So we did that very successfully for, or we've done it very successfully uh, uh, since then. So there was no outside money. There was no other interest and it was just, again, that was a, I had impeccable relationships with the, with the factories. I had excellent credit and I had a track history of, selling automobiles. So I was able to talk some manufacturers into, you know, taking a chance on me and uh, the rest is history. You've been married close to 60 years. Is that what you said? 50. 50. I'm in, my, I'm in my 51st year. And this is my 51st year in the automobile business. Yes, sir. Can you talk about any experiences or any insights about marriage and being married, staying married for 51 years and then you know, getting married out of high school, being married, going through college, playing college basketball, and then corporately, and then buying your own dealerships, and and then running really hard with that. Can you talk about that? Marriage is is just a, a mirror image of, of life. I mean, there are ups and downs, and there are uh, intense uh, discussions and uh, disagreements, and sometimes. Uh, you know, outright shot uh, matches. <laughs> but uh, the greatest fear people have is of the unknown. So sometimes the the situation you're in is better than the whatever you think the situation is going to be on the other side of the tracks. And uh, 
and I saw my industry has a high divorce rate, particularly for driven salespeople and sales managers and even people in the in the shop. And you know, and I, I say my industry is just because that's the industry I know. So I was, uh, and and most of my dealer peers, uh, you know, went through one or two, you know, three marriages. So uh, when we bought the dealerships, my wife uh, became a you know, an actual financial partner. So uh, that kind of cut out the uncertainty and the, you know, what's going to happen to me type of deal. And uh, it just, uh, you know, it, it's just, it's worked out. And I wouldn't say it was a, a grand plan, but uh, you look up 50 years later and uh, there it is. When you were talking about, you know, buying your first dealerships, I'm curious, do you ever look back and wish that you would have, pull that trigger sooner or not? Well, of course, you always thought about that. In, in my position, I was a I was an extremely high uh, income earner. I made more money as a platform manager for Mr. Pinsky than most of my dealer uh, peers. So it was, uh, you know, a reluctance to give that up. Uh, I loved uh, my association with uh, the Pinsky organization. I, you know, and even at, a, at what would have been normally the end of a normal career, I was still learning like I was, you know, first day in college. I've owned, I had owned dealerships before and my family had owned dealerships before and it didn't end well. So it took a long time to get over that. And quite frankly, it took a long time to financially recover from that. So, uh, you know, timing is, is everything. And it just had reached that point with the, with the organization and was a very amicable, Actually, it was planned a year in advance, and uh, worked out uh, worked out really well. It doesn't mean it wasn't a lot of stress and teeth gnashing and anxiety, but uh, now then I look back and I laugh uh, about it. And sure, I wish I'd have done it sooner. Uh, more than that, I wish I'd have bought more stores sooner. So, while you were running and gunning with Mr. Skelton, the Pinsky family, et cetera from what I just felt like I heard you say is you also had some ownership interests or owned some dealerships at that time. Is that correct? Prior to that. Prior to that. Prior to that. We own, we own small dealerships in Arkansas and Mississippi family dealerships that, that we sold or liquidated before I went to work for Mr. Skelton. And you said that did not go well. It did, it did, not, it did not end well financially. Yes, sir. And the reason I'm asking these questions is because if you look at, your work now, you look at Landers now, you know, you have 12 different auto dealerships. Is that correct? With close to 500 associates. I mean, I'm not sure how accurate that, that was this article pulled from last year. Is that accurate? Pretty close. Yeah. We, we actually operate 15 franchises uh, in 10 dealership locations and we have about approximately 450 uh, associates and we operate in Memphis and South Haven and Jackson, Mississippi, and Little Rock, Arkansas, and Carryville, Tennessee. And you said 15 franchises there, right? That's correct. But there was a point where you, it sounds like you had to, some of these dealerships with family and, you know, many, many years ago, y'all uh, ended it and you said it didn't end well. I'm curious, can you talk about anything from that experience that's helpful? And can you also talk about maybe your drive or your persistence and endurance to continue to keep moving forward. And then several years later, fast forward, you've got that data and, and these amounts of franchises, et cetera. 
So can we get some context on that? Well, sure. I, I, you know, failure is a great, uh, a great teacher, you know, and, and stress is a, is a great teacher, but, you know, we operated the small dealerships in small towns and struggled financially and never enough capital and never enough, uh, uh, human capital and those markets were changing rapidly and the you know the Arkansas and Mississippi Delta were going from an agrarian uh, economy to most people moving to town and everything uh, mechanized and population was moving away and you know quite frankly if I'd have maybe if I'd have worked then like I worked after I came to work for Mr. Skelton or Mr. Fisky things might have been different but it was just a law of diminishing returns and Finally, all the stores uh, got liquidated, and I was tired of living in a you know a, a small Delta town. And I was I was tired of my customers driving past me to go to Memphis to buy an automobile. So I came to Memphis and got a job and uh, changed my circumstances. Was that humbling that period? It was, but it never it never bothered me. And. I mean, I literally was an automobile dealership with multiple franchises and my name on the sign and uh, came to Memphis and walked into Mr. Shelton's store and said, I need a job. And he said, start selling cars. And I never batted an eye. And I did. And 30 days later, I was running the place. Wow. Well, you know, it was one of those cases where I wasn't getting ready to get ready. I knew I needed to make a living and I had a family and, I, and and children and expenses. And this is a, this is a true story. I made more money the first month I came to work in Memphis, Tennessee than anything I ever paid myself while I was a dealer. I'll never forget. I called my wife after about the first two days and I said, you won't believe how many people that are up here that want to buy a car every day. And, you know, we could go days in those small towns sometimes without selling a car. So uh, it was an eye-opening experience. And now that's something I wish I'd have done earlier, but uh, I was 42 or three or, uh, years old. And, uh, you know, I didn't have any, of course, I had pride, but I, I didn't, it didn't bother me. I knew what my talents were and I figured water would sink its own level. And it did. Specifically, I'm curious, and this is a question I had prepared to understand what you're uniquely gifted at that's given you the success that you've had. But I'm curious, what are those talents that you just referenced that gave you the ability to come in and sell to make more money those first 30 days than what you had with owning or being a part owner in those dealerships? Just an absolute refusal to take no for an answer. I just was not going to be denied. And I grabbed every opportunity and I took ever every advantage. And I met some incredible people in that first month as customers that are still my customers today. I now sell their grandchildren and their great grandchildren, but I just, I was so afraid of failing. Well, I was to the point where I couldn't fail. I had to make a paycheck and I had to make a living and I didn't care what the job was. If it was parking cars or lining up cars or checking cars in or working the service lane or, or whatever it is. And I just had that uh, mentality and I wanted to go to work and, and it was some great people. And even after I ended up running the place, they all stayed. And then we moved to a bigger operation and they all came with me. 
So I, I think I've always had an ability to relate to people. I'm very driven. I have the same expectations of the people around me. Uh, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. When you talk about being able to carry those people with you and you had great people, when you think back on your career and where you're at today and what you're still learning, I'm curious if you had to boil it down to maybe two or three principles, maybe four, what do you feel like your, your dealerships need? What do you feel like your own organizations need that you're directly involved with running? What do you feel like your people need to really operate at a, the highest level of performance? Well, I think they need a positive attitude. I, I think that we all need leadership. I think people need goals and objectives, and then they need a path to get there. And then they need to be measured and then they need to be compensated. I learned along the way that talented people, once they get the bit in their teeth and they start making money, the worst thing you can do is go back to them and say, okay, you're making too much money. I'm going to change your pay plan. I vowed when I had a chance that if I had high income earners that started out performing the metrics that I would leave them alone from a pay plan standpoint. And I, I think if you ask them all, they they would tell you that I have. So this business is is high risk, but it also creates an immense amount of wealth if you take advantage of your opportunities. So it sounds like you still sell people cars today. You're not just sitting, you're not just sitting in your office or out on the golf course, just not even there. I, I laugh because it's it, it's you know typical to say, well, people come in. I don't, I don't want to bother you. Just tell me where I can buy a car. So, you know, my answer is, this is what I do for a living. And this is what I enjoy. And I, I literally sell a car every day. Now, do I go and actually pick out the vehicle and open the doors and do the paperwork? No, but I have individuals in each of the stores that uh, handle those, those accounts. And they, they only have one charge, do the deal, whatever it costs. And I want that customer so happy that they're going to tell me and you and everybody else that they do business with that, you know, they're glad they came there. So and I, I tell them, I said, if you end up losing money on the deal, I'll take responsibility for it. And, but whatever you do, just sell the car. So nothing bad, nothing bad ever happens when you sell an automobile. Did you operate that way when you were only a salesman too? Absolutely. I had a, a, a I, listen, I took the side, I took the side of the customer. So when I went to the manager and, you know, for approval on my deal, they didn't turn it down lightly. I mean, if I fought tooth and nail to get that deal done and I didn't worry about what it was making or whether it was even making money, that was the manager's responsibility. My responsibility was sell that automobile. And then when I became a manager, we adopted the same philosophy with our salespeople and our sales managers and our, and our volume went up exponentially. Yes, sir. Can you talk about how you've taken that stance, how it's paid off? Because you haven't, it's not like it sounds like each transaction or each deal you're examining through the lens of a certain margin. It sounds like you have an intuition or a feeling of experience about the overall whole. And it sounds like the results are incredible and it's all central around the customer, but it doesn't sound like a lot of bureaucracy. Is that true? And can you maybe talk about that? That is absolutely uh, true. The average consumer in America will buy 11 
plus automobiles in their lifetime. We are a for-profit business, but everything we touch every time doesn't necessarily make a quote-unquote profit at the time. There are lots of income streams in an automobile dealership. 65% of all car buyers have a trade-in. 80% of all car buyers have some kind of lien or financing on their automobile. 50% of all car purchasers have extended warranties on their automobiles. 100% of all the car buyers need maintenance and service after the sale. So there are lots of touch points. Within a year of you or any consumer buying an automobile, someone in their immediate family or related family will purchase an automobile. These are facts. This has been, these have been facts forever. So while we took the, the, the approach that we were going to sell every, every vehicle, regardless of cost or loss, and sometimes 20% of the, of the sales, maybe even 30% of the sales were net, net losses when they went out the door. But we always had that tie to them. We had that trade-in or we had raised that financing or they had that service uh, uh, operation. And we got so many repeats and referrals. It, it was just like a loss leader in the grocery store or just like a loss leader with Amazon or, you know, and they... They'll send you more customers. If you're not selling out 100, 150 miles from your franchise point, then you're really not doing what you can do in the marketplace. Now, you, we all have assigned territories that go five or six miles around our stores, and that's what we're responsible for selling as far as meeting our objectives with the manufacturer. But um, you can expand that horizon a, a, lot, a lot further than that. So I just I always tell our I tell our people to this day, nothing bad ever happens when you sell an automobile if you tell the truth. And if you've done everything you can do and you're not making what you think you ought to make or what you want to make, you know, sell the automobile. Look, we sell money. We sell used cars. We sell warranties. We sell maintenance plans. There's lots of ways that we, that we touch the cars. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms. From a consumer standpoint, what are the things that 
you saw 50 years ago, 51 years ago, and what are the things that you see today and what are the things that you still see being the case 25 years from now about what people want, how to sell, and how to take care of people the way that you just described? When I started in the, in the, in the business, everything was pen and paper, and every single thing was negotiated. That's the way it was. That's the way the consumer did it. And that's the way the dealership went it. And it was, it was a grind. Fast forward to today, the majority of automobiles are, are sold at a preset price point that's never negotiated. A large percentage of the population likes that. And practically all of it is through or on the internet, uh, consumers don't go shop anymore. They they shop online for two or three or five hours. Uh, they typically visit one or two or three uh, dealership websites. But when they get ready to pull the trigger, they go one place. So what you're saying is there's still that human interaction that people still go to that one place while leveraging data, pricing, options, but they're still going to make that big transaction in person. Is that what you're saying? For a large majority of the population, there there is now a significant portion that want to buy strictly online. They don't want to see anybody. They just want the car to drive up out front, sign somewhere or sometime. And that is a growing uh, population. And, and, and that number is increasing every year and will continue to increase. And I think the pandemic has accelerated uh, that growth. If you want a touchless purchase option, you can do that with every automobile dealership there is, but you can do it with those national consolidators that you see uh, advertised on uh, TV all the time. And uh, as people have been confined to their homes and buying on Amazon and Google, they've gotten a lot, a lot more used to that. Do you know the data, just curious, of the people that are operating that, that new emerging way versus the first way that you described it? I think it's at least 10% of the industry, which is a huge number. Now, on the other hand, the other 90% are still digitally connected. They're just shopping you online in virtual walkarounds and back and forth on the uh, chat rooms and, and e-leads, but they're still coming in and putting pen on paper, you know, at the at the consummation of it. I, I think that I think there will be a, a shift over the next three to five years. And I think eventually as the generations change and as group of people like me die off, then people your age will come along and that will just be standard operating procedure. Electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles are also going to help lead to that change. It's interesting to understand your personality more and more because you seem very extroverted in a sense of relational connecting with the customer with wanting them to have a good experience, wanting to take care of their family, et cetera. But you also seem very process-driven, and you seem very analytical from a number standpoint. Is that true? I, I, would, I would agree with you. I, I love the customer contact, but I realize that it is evolving, and it is it is changing, and I don't want to be that dinosaur that said it would never change. I'm not building this dealership group to expire when I expire, or, or I, I have very little day-to-day -day involvement in the actual dealerships uh, anymore. Uh, we have a chief operating officer. We have 
managing partners in all the physical uh, facilities, you know, and they they do the the day to day activities and the and the business that happens on the showroom floors and and then the service departments. But I I think it's somebody's role to always be looking beyond the horizon, and you know, we would be derelict if we didn't realize that there is a paradigm shift coming on touchless uh, sales. There is a paradigm shift coming on electric and autonomous vehicles, and it's not coming slowly. It's accelerating. So I said that, and and it was helpful to hear from you to gain even more clarity, because I, I wouldn't think that you are a dinosaur and that you're just putting your head in the sand. So I'm curious, as much as you feel comfortable talking about how are you continuing to transform and position all of your dealerships in your holding companies or company to adapt and move with this fast-growing transformation that's taking place in the automobile industry just around the country and other parts of the world? Well, we have, a, we have great relationships with our OEM partners, and they're very involved in our dealerships. And our key personnel are tied as an umbil- with an umbilical cord to those to those uh, OEMs. And those guys, they already know what's coming. They already know what they're going to sell in ten years because it's already on the drawing boards. We've already seen every automobile that we're going to sell five years from now. You know, we've seen mock-ups of it or clay models, or we've seen pictures of. It. So we know what that's coming. Well, the next five years is already in the in the pipeline. You know, so we educate our people and we train our people and we stay in touch. We read a lot. Uh, we we have personal relationships with a lot of the leaders in these in these industries, both emerging that are brands that you may not have even heard of that we, you know, we keep our eye on. Because again, if, if you don't want to be a dinosaur, you damn well better know if the if the meter is uh fixing to hit the earth somewhere. So uh one thing we've tried to do with this organization is build scale. At some point, everybody's going to need to plug in, everybody's going to need a battery, and everybody's going to need to, to work on them. But there are going to be fleets and fleets of vehicles that are going to need maintenance and they're going to need service and they're going to need one central place they, they can go. You know, nobody can do that on a national scale any better than in a group of automobile dealerships. So we have tried to have Asian brands and European brands and domestic brands, and we have Highline and we have mass uh, produced automobiles. Most of our footprint is pretty diverse. At some point, a large part of the industry, maybe 10 or 15% of it will be shared vehicles. And those shared vehicles are gonna have to, they're gonna have to have some maintenance points and some service points and some battery points. And uh, we're gonna be prepared for when that happens. Curious, earlier you were talking about running hard, people that take initiative. You can tell with people that salespeople that you hire, are they going to sit there and wait to get ready to get ready or are they going to get in and start producing? Let's say you hire 10 people or let's say when you were hired and 10 people were hired, of those 10 people, how many people of that 10 do you think will make it with your organization to handle the different roles that need to be filled. I'm just curious. Is that six out of 10, eight out of 10? All 10 of them can have, can make it in some capacity. Five of them would be 
fillers, and I don't mean that as a negative term. Look, in any organization, I don't care if it's International Paper, FedEx, AutoZone, or Landers Auto Group, everybody is not the boss, the manager, or the driver. And no successful organization can do it with having, having people who can do it in every role. So we assume that all 10 of them will play a role. We think that two of them or one of them, you know, will rise to the top and take on a, a mid-level or a senior level uh, management role. We hope that one of them wants to become a equity partner and, you know, run one of our operations or our own equity in the store. So it's always a challenge. You, when you bring people in, you think they're all equal. And then, uh, you know, it's like in any organization. It's like, you know, with a basketball team or a, or a football team. All 11 people are important, but only one of them is important. What you're saying is you understand that going into it. So when you bring them on the bus, you try to understand – generally which which role they're going to fill on that so you can try to make the best decisions for those needs of the overall team so to speak well, one thing i learned from uh, mr skelton is sometimes you can take a good person who's performing well and happy and you can overtax them or put them in a role that they're not comfortable in or not suited for or not made for or don't have the personality for and then you lose a good man or woman who was doing a good job for you, and you don't gain the next job that you thought that they were suited for, and they either gone, they quit, they blow out. And then it's hard for them to, I don't say, I wouldn't say move backwards, but just move into that role. Because too many times they would they would look at it as failure, or you had raised their expectations to the level that they couldn't perform at. There's a lot of there's a lot of people like that in life. Curious, I thought of this earlier too when you were talking about emerging trends. But what is the reason that the automobile market is expected to grow, you know, so much more significantly in China and then potentially stay flat or a decrease in the United States? Because there's about three billion people who live in China and there's only 333 million who live in the United States. It's strictly a matter of scale. Here's a little known fact. Automobile sales in China are heavily regulated by the government. And even though American manufacturers and European manufacturers and Asian manufacturers sell and manufacture there, they only do so in partnership with the Chinese individual or a Chinese company, and sometimes even a state-sponsored partner. And the government decides how many automobile licenses they're going to issue in a given year. They'll make a difference how many people want. That's just how many they're going to issue. That could be a huge number. Plus, as the Chinese people become more entrepreneur-driven and they're, they create more personal wealth. They have the ability to do these things. And then, of course, they see what's going on around the rest of the world, you know, and they want the same thing. You know, so in order to, I guess, to keep their people happy, then, you know, more houses get built, more apartments get built, and more cars are allotted. I've talked to 
our OEM partners who manufacture over there, and, and, and you know, they'll tell you, look, we could sell a lot more cars over there, and we can make more cars over there when the Chinese government decides that they're going to allow it. So anyway, they, they have a huge population base. Their personal wealth is expanding. Their demand for consumer products like cars, computers, and refrigerators is expanding. They should have always been the largest market in the world. And it was an anomaly, you know, when they want, when they weren't. Here, here's a little, here's an example. One of the reasons that General Motors kept Buick when they went through bankruptcy and they exited Pontiac and Hummer and all the other brands that they got through with is because Buick was a huge seller in China. It is an aspirational brand to the Chinese people. And for example, last year, I don't know what the numbers are, but let's just say that Buick sold a million 200,000 vehicles. Well, 200,000 of them were sold in America and a million of them were sold in China. Well, that's that's kind of how that, that industry works. Now, uh, 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 there's another a country, India, dwarfs the United States in population and soon will dwarf the United States in automobile sales. And also all this being said with if the United States becomes more more of a minimalist population from the standpoint of ride sharing or you know autonomous cars, et cetera, the way you've described it. And if population doesn't increase to match a trend with these nations, China and India, you know, ultimately that's the reason. Is that correct? Well, we we will never catch China and we will never be able to keep up with India. That's just sheer population numbers and you know, it has nothing to do with the desirability of an automobile. And there'll be more cars sold in America than are being sold now or than were being sold uh, last year. And and there is still a lot of room for growth. And there are many well, you know, highly esteemed uh, economists that uh, predict automobile sales in America could reach 20 million sales and, and comfortably uh, stay there. Well, it's a pretty significant gain when you're selling 16 or 17 million. Then I guess some data I looked at was inconsistent with uh, what you shared with The Economist, but uh, thank you for touching on that. And it's really interesting when, especially even take the Buick example, and I'm not going to spend much more time here on this topic, but something that 200,000, like you said, in that example, and a million over there, it's just, we can be so um, wrapped up in our own world and you just not see the bigger picture and the demand of different parts of the world, just with what different people want and what it, the deeper meaning of that brand to them as well. And also Due to economies of scale and just sheer cost, it's almost impossible to be a successful manufacturer now unless you can sell world, worldwide and particularly in China. The, the Japanese saw that first when they came to America. Earlier, we talked about managing capital and you talked about investing for the dealership. You talked about how dealerships are like a cow. They eat cash the way a cow eats grass, et cetera. You talked about some examples many years ago with some of the dealerships you were involved with early on. And then obviously now I'm curious, can you talk about how some principles that you have about how you manage capital, how you manage capital with your dealerships, how you handle, look at capital with acquisitions, just top three or four things maybe that, that have served you well. And is that connected to also playing the long game? with capital versus trying to get instantaneous uh, rewards off of it. 
well, you can never have too much capital in, in our business. And maybe that's true of a, of a lot of businesses. One thing I, I liked about working for Mr. Pinsky in the public company, I never had to worry about capital. I never had to worry about the bank account. We wrote a check and it was covered. Now, we had operating principles and we had we had uh, working capital uh, allocated to us. But if we bought a new dealership and the number was three million in working capital or four million in working capital, poof, it just appeared in the bank. That's a little bit different, you know, from a individual when you have to you have to write that uh, check. To this day, every morning by seven thirty or seven forty-five, I get a cash position on our entire company, and I get a a number of all the outstanding checks, you know, to the to the penny as of the close of business the night before. So I know when I open up where we are cash flow wise and what franchise is where, and I know what checks are going to clear the bank that day. And I guess that's just a a holdover from working, you know, for Mr. Pinsky, but also from going into business in the depth of the, of an economic depression like 08. So we look at money capital and human capital the same way. And we try to accumulate as much of it as we can and hold on as much as we can. And we will make an acquisition. That's what we're looking at is, okay, how much, how much cash is this going to take? How much debt are we going to take on? And what do we think our return is? And the returns are immediate and usually we're able to liquidate our debt in about half the time that we anticipated and we don't take dividends on a acquisition until we've retired all the debt and that's a that's a big impetus for the partners to get that done and we operate on our own cash when we went in business we operate on uh, borrowed capital have you and your wife would you say y'all lived conservatively more we did. We we knew what our obligations were, and we knew what we needed to do, and uh, we we lived very modestly for for many many years. Well, in fact, we lived in the same house for thirty years, and these children had grandchildren come in, and uh, uh, until we got to a position to to make a change. Yes, sir. I'm curious. Can you give any advice, or can you give any? insight into how you think about what you start with each day and how you manage your day to be on top of all the things that we've talked about, but then also be able to react to the unknowns or things that need your attention and then also handle matters and within your own company and personnel. And can you give any advice or any principles that you've lived by just each day to all the things that we've talked about? I'm a list maker. I write down the things I need to do during the day. Now, does that list get changed? And do I go from one to five? Uh, you know, life interferes sometimes and, you know, throws you a curve or you get distracted and get on something else. But I, I just move that to the, the, the top of the list. And then I don't think people can do more than two or three or four things. I, I don't think they can make a list that has 15 or 20 items on it and, and everything. Well, how am I ever going to get to the bottom of it? So, you know, when I walk into a sales meeting or I walk into a manager's meeting, I like to have one or two or three things that we're going to talk about. Are there, are there 15 things we're going to talk about? Yes, they are, but you can't get to all those 15. Uh, that's another uh, principle I uh, adopted from uh, Mr. Pinsky. 
if we bought a store that was broke or we had a department that was broke or we got a store and then it just went broke. And I don't mean financially broke. I mean, it just wasn't, wasn't performing. Well, he, he would say, look, we're not going to, we're not going to fix it overnight and we're not going to fix it today, but we're going to fix this one thing. And then tomorrow we're going to fix this thing. And we're not going to talk about the thing we talked about today because we already fixed it. <laughs> so, I mean, it was a, it was a good principle and it's, and it's, it gives you something to to focus on. So I know what I'm going to do every day. Now, again, I'm not involved in the day-to-day into the business now. So by the time we get through this conversation, I won't necessarily be focusing on business, but now I have the time and the money, you know, that I can do those things. And I I intensely dislike having to go back to the same person, to the same operation, and talk about the same problem over and over and over. When you do that, you got a problem, or I got a problem, or they got a problem, uh, and it's just a lack of focus or a lack of attention to detail, or it's a lack of doing the process. Yes, sir. So that's kind of how I operate. Was there a point where you became more comfortable with living, like, with the unknown, for example, you talked about Mr. Pinsky. We're going to do that one thing today, but if you've got a list of 20 things in your head that might be driving you nuts or that might be threats or that might be challenges. But I mean, there's a lot of research, there's a lot of books, there's a lot of content on two, three things about fixing that one thing, doing it well, so then you don't have to go back, et cetera. But when you have this list running in your head, is there any insight that you can give on how to just kind of let those things go and take it one day at a time with that one big thing. No, I, I'm not very successful at that. And I don't know how to do that. So they, they just revolve around and they, you know, they add more pressure or they keep you up at night or you spend time, you know, thinking about it. I, I have never been able to uh, (laughs) resolve that dilemma in my mind. Back in 2007, when the, financial crisis hit in 2008, you talked about the stress. I think you said 25% of dealerships went under, if I remember correctly. They did. And that was right right before you bought your first one. Can you talk about maybe getting through that period or how to keep doing the list, so to speak, and keep taking it one day at a time when the world seems in turmoil? Is there any insight or perspective you can give on that? If you're going to be a leader, you better act like it, talk like it, walk like it, look like it 24-7. And I I never let anybody see me sweat. And I could be internally in turmoil. And I could wonder about cash flow and business and the state of the, of the world. But you, if you're going to be a leader, you need to set the positive example. I was the first one there. I was the last one to leave and I was always visible and I was always accessible. And it's kind of like the proverbial duck. You know, you just see him floating on the water, but he is paddling furiously underneath. And that's what I was always doing. And it was a, it was a high stress crisis uh, deal. We literally bought two dealerships out of bankruptcy in that period of time. And these were dealerships we were trying to buy while they were open and couldn't get it done. And you still had an 
unclear picture of what the future would look like when you bought those. Is that correct? I did as, as well as everybody else. But at the time, what was what was encouraging, and I, I probably got it someplace and I used it in some of our presentations, the government, the, the office of whatever, whatever that big budget organization they have, uh, there's a name for it, they had done a projection of what they thought the U.S. economy was going to do over the next 10 years. And they published it sometime in 07 or 08. And in one particular segment, they took the automobile industry when it was, when, you know, if the curve was up here and it just dropped straight off the cliff, then in one year it goes down 50%. They showed a projection every year for the next 10 years of what they thought automobile sales were going to be. And I looked at it and pretty soon it had come, you know, the projections were back to where it was before and even higher. And I thought, oh my God, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And I actually, when I was going to, to some of the banks getting financing, I was going to some of the OEMs to uh, get their uh, franchise rights. I used that and I showed them, I said, look, Here's where we're going. If you go back and look at it, I mean, it was uncannily correct in the deal. So it gave me a lot of confidence that, man, there's a there's a whole new world coming, and I better get in now because this is the cheapest it's ever it'll ever be. You got perspective. You looked at the macro. You stuck to that and didn't get sucked in to all the pandemonium that was going on through media or just through person to person interaction. I was scared, and I and I knew that it was I knew it was a risk, but I felt like it was comfortable. The same thing is going to happen as we come out of this pandemic. I, I think that there will be an economic explosion of consumerism as people become free to move around. Yes, people are buying a lot right now, and yes, they're doing a lot on the internet, and yes, they're doing doing a lot of purchasing. But I think that it's going to be a release for people to get back. Now, whether that's going to happen in Q4 of this year or Q1 of next year, you know, or whether there's going to be another virus mutation that we don't know about that slams us against the wall, I think we'll fix it. And I think we'll come out of it on the other side stronger than we are now. You know, I know you're ahead of the Memphis Better Business Bureau, correct? I mean, you've held a ton of positions in the community, but that's one of the boards you chair, correct? I did, and I'm I'm, I'm a past chairman now, and I've I've been on I've been on the board for many for a long time, and I went through the through the different chairs and did the chairman and the past chairman, and I sit on the executive committee now. Let's say someone you know well, or let's say somebody that has been a lifelong client. Something comes to you with a mistake that's happened within your dealership or an error that we all have as a business owner uh, or a part of an organization, et cetera. What are the things that you've learned how to just take care of things, you know, get things done still? Because you, my point is you're very out there in the community. You're very out there from a branding standpoint, but we're all humans. Things happen. Could you give insights on how you can still maintain that momentum from an outward facing standpoint, from a branding standpoint, but then also just deal with, humanity and what, what happens in business or organizations, et cetera? I mean, that's a very good point and a very good question. That's a really good observation. We make mistakes every day. We stub our toe every day. We 
irritate people. Sometimes we make them outright mad. We do everything that any human does in any organization, and it just happens. But what we've learned is don't hide, don't try to sweep it under the rugs, get to the root of the problem, and then solve it. In our business, the first loss is absolutely always the least loss. So my time is worth lots. And as I get older, it's worth even more. Our people's time is worth money. So sometimes, even though it costs you money, and usually it does cost you money, you're better off getting it behind you. And you're better off if you can make a silk purse out of it, because you might just reignite a customer for life. And I'd rather people that we made a mistake with go out and tell everybody, well, I had a bad experience, but they made it right. And I'm never going anyplace else from there. And, and you and you shouldn't either. We had a customer this week who was unhappy with a set of tires that we sold three years ago. And nothing was going to make this customer happy except a new set of tires. You know, when the first level manager says, no, we're not going to do it. We're, we don't we don't know it to you. It's not warranty and you shouldn't expect that. Well, by the time it it got to my attention, and I, I called the customer and I said, what do you want? What's going to make you happy? She said, a new set of tires. I said, if I give you a new set of tires, will you give me all your business uh, in the future that we're that that we can earn your business on. She said, yes, I would. We put a brand new set of tires on it, $700 dollars and, you know, we went on down the road. And do all of them get resolved that way? And do we always give a new set of tires? No, but uh, you better make it right. And one thing I have learned in dealing with people is you better ask them exactly what they want. And you better let them tell you exactly what they think. Doesn't make any difference how emotional they're getting or how mad they are, if they don't exorcise that demon and you don't let them tell you, you are never going to fix the problem. Yes, sir. That's very good. <laughs> it usually gets, the, and then usually become even better. It's kind of like the, the fight you have with your wife or your children, you know, <laughs> or your best friend, your best friend in life might've been the guy that you had to fight with on the school ground, you know, you know, some of my bitterest uh, uh, confrontations happen on a basketball court or a football field or something. And then those people are their friends for life. I've had some knockdown drag out, unfortunately, with customers before, but, uh, you know, we got past them. Yes, sir. Do you remember a story a few years ago where the person that owned the, the marketing company that owned the advertising for a bunch of uh, bus stops, do you remember that where he put a sign it's a Mr. Ritchie, we want your business. Do you recall that? You you have really been doing some digging. I didn't realize I had that big of a digital footprint. That worries me. <laughs> I, remember, I remember it very well. Did did you give him your business? This is funny. We are that guy was Randall Swainey. And he ran a company at the time called Nagley Outdoors, which was one of the largest billboard and outdoor companies in the world. And I was a big outdoor buyer. At the at Covenant Bike Toyota, a huge outdoor buyer. And he started selling 
the signs that are in the bus stops and he thought I ought to be on there. And I thought he was absolutely crazy. And I said, I wouldn't buy those if you gave them to me. And he put my, he put that message on 31 bus stop boards. And I'll be damned if I didn't buy every one of them. You did. Now, now, now Randall, Randall owns a Marshall County steakhouse and he's a, and we are still good friends. Actually, we're, we live within a, about a block of each other, and every time we see each other, we still laugh about that. He he was a better salesman than I was. That is a great story, and I'm going to apply that somehow, some way. He, you know, he spent a little money, and I I spent more. Yeah. Last question I got, unless there's anything that you feel like I haven't covered uh, that would be meaningful, and I've had a blast talking to you. I've heard when you were inducted to the society of entrepreneurs, you said entrepreneurship is the bedrock of the American spirit. Amen. And it's the willingness to risk all to build lasting value. I'm curious. Amen. Let's say tomorrow something happened to your dealerships and you had $30,000 to your name. I'm curious what you would do next and how you would use that for what you would do. Start selling automobiles strictly online. I wouldn't have any physical footprint. I wouldn't have any physical space. I would I would do it all digitally and I wouldn't have all this uh, brick and mortar that I own right now. How would you connect with your customers that way? Personally, I wouldn't be able to connect with them except digitally or through advertising mediums or, you know, some way to get the, the word out. I mean, you'd have, you'd have to tell people and it would have to grow organically uh, over a period of time, uh, although you could accelerate that. And some of it depend on how you got your word out. A lot of these uh, online sites are now are doing it through traditional advertising. Pretty soon they won't have to do that traditional advertising. It'll all be done digitally. Yes, sir. I think that's the, I think that's the wave of the future. What advice could you give or what insight could you give? Let's say somebody that is in a similar position to the way that you were when you came to Memphis to go to Mr. Skelton, what advice could you give them to get in and get after it and not wait around to be waiting to quote Mr. Penske, whatever that exact quote was? Well, I mean, you need to find something that you have a passion for something that you, that you like and and makes you comfortable and you can work in an environment that you're comfortable. If your environment is working like you are kind of in a studio, you know, that that's one way. If your environment is going out and fronting people face to face, you know, that's, you know, that's a different scenario, but look in, in America, if you want to make money, you either got to sell something or make something. I, I mean, unless you're born with it, if you're not making it, you better be selling it. And there's lots of ways to sell it. And a lot of entrepreneurs in the digital world have shown us ways to create billions in wealth with what we wouldn't traditionally, you know, call selling. I, I'm fascinated by this 37 year old kid who's going to raise $200 million for St. Jude. And he's going to be the first civilian to pilot a spaceship. <laughs> he, well, he, he invented, you know, he invented the way that we all pay for our products at checkout. Right. You know, or the barcode uh, deal. Well, we won't think about that as selling, but I mean, he, he made something, you know, and he, and he sold it. I didn't say he sold the company, maybe he still owns it, but I mean, he sold that product very successfully. There are lots of people that are, that are doing that, but 
37 years old and he high school dropout or college, whatever it is. I don't know what he was, but anyway, he's, I, I'm pretty damn impressed. Yes, sir. And I'm really impressed the fact that he put up a hundred million dollars to St. Jude and said, okay, match it. Cause I love St. Jude. Yes, sir. I think he wants to raise 200 more, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and now the St. Jude says, if you make a donation, you might be one of the people drawn. I thought about making a bunch of donations because your name goes in there every time. I thought, man, how'd you like to be a 77 year old astronaut? That would be fascinating to me that they would teach me how to do all that stuff. Well, you heard it here first. If, uh, if you're going up, then we'll, we'll consider this your announcement. <laughs> yeah, I, doubt, I doubt if that's going to happen. <laughs> Kent, so grateful for your time this morning. Can't wait to get this out. Thank you so much. Well, it's been a hoot, Sam. I'm, I'm flattered that you call me, and uh, it's worth just what you paid for it. <laughs> Thank you, sir. All right, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. Also, please subscribe to the show, follow me on social, and join me on this curiosity-fueled journey so that you can feel that same sense of purpose and see the opportunities that are right for you. All of this at drivenbypodcast.com. See you next time on the Driven By Podcast.